Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and I'd like to inspect your books. If you're listening to this, you could win the chance to be on this podcast. All you have to do is pre-order my new novel, Limelight, in hardback from bookshop.org, and you'll be entered into a prize draw. And if that prize doesn't appeal, another one shall be arranged. Limelight is a story about sisterhood, sexuality, and self-esteem. It's about Frankie trying to survive family tragedies with grace and good humour while negotiating the chaos that comes from being naked on the internet. You can also pre-order from the Margate Bookshop and get a personalised dedication if you request one from their website. They deliver nationwide. My novel Careering, a romantic comedy about why work will never love you back, has just come out in paperback and it's available in all of the usual places. I'm slowly getting as many signed copies to indie bookshops as I can. Check out the Margate Bookshop, the House of Books and Friends in Manchester, Burt's Books in Swindon, Book Bodega in Ramsgate, Hatchard St Pancras, Inc. 84 and Book Bar in London. I am one woman and it might take me a while to get everywhere, but if you buy from an indie, I would love to send you a personalised book plate. Ask your local bookshop or ask us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at YBooked and we shall make it happen. Now, on to today's guest. This has been Bonnie Garmus's year. She's everyone's favourite new author after the whole world fell in love with her first novel, Lessons in Chemistry, and its protagonist and star, Elizabeth Sott. Our conversation got quite serious. We talked about science, philosophy and changing the world, but we also talked about how librarians changed our world and about Harriet the Spy. Enjoy. I was just reading an interview with you a couple of months ago. You said you were perhaps about to read Oscar Wilde's, um, is it called Only Dull People Are Brilliant at Breakfast? How is it? Well, you know, it's just a collection of little sayings of his. You know, Oscar Wilde is a pretty grumpy man, but he could be really, really funny. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoy anything. He has such good craft. And and so these are just really sentences of his that that he put in a book. I love starting the day with books like that if I'm not in a necessarily in a reading frame of mind and it does just kind of jolt something in a in a positive way it's sort of a exercise uh, for the brain do you have a, a time that you like to read or a sort of any kind of reading rituals I love to read on you know on the tube um any kind of commute I love to read and then I read at night in bed or before bed on the sofa you know that's really my time I I don't really read in the morning except for my own stuff. Maybe not the best way to start the day. 
<laughs> but you know when your brain is sharp and you're you know working and editing and crafting um was it virginia wolf he said that if we're all milk bottles that's the cream oh I'll you know what? Our fresh morning brains uh, that sounds like virginia wolf i don't know yeah i'm not familiar with that but uh she's right i mean at least for me i have to do I have to do like a puzzle first, a crossword or or the spelling bee, and then I can start working. I'd love to hear about what kind of a reader you were growing up and those first books that really spoke to you and felt like they were written for you. I was a really early reader um, and I read, you know, broadly. I had this big idea as a child that I would read every book in the library. I thought that was completely possible. And then I remember my librarian saying, you don't want to read them all. Some of them aren't very good. And I was astonished because I thought, no, only good things get published. I was wrong. But anyway, I think my favorite book from childhood, the most, I guess the most important one for me was Harriet the Spy um, by Louise Fitzhugh. When that book came out, it was kind of revolutionary because here was a child who wasn't very likable in a book. And she kept a notebook on all of her friends and she wasn't the nicest person in the world, but you could tell she was going through a lot. She had a lot of pain in her life. So this was a, a book about real childhood, about children who were vulnerable. And, you know, she had good friends and things like that, but sometimes she was even mean to her friends. The reason why this book was so important to me was because she kept a notebook and that's when I started keeping a notebook because Harriet did. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I think it was pretty, pretty big book for me. But honestly, my librarian was really helpful in suggesting other books I might read. I think about Harriet the Spy all the time. And I'm quite surprised that book doesn't come up more often. Um, I loved it so much. And the thing I remember being really struck by as well was that I think her parents are quite open with her. They have some fairly sophisticated adult conversations with her there's a part I love where I think she asks her mother how she knew she was in love with her father and her mother tells her the origin story and I remember I think that was the first time I heard of the drink for Tom Collins and I think her father had had Tom, too many Tom Collinses and thrown up on her mother's shoes but I thought I'd love to read that novel because I'm not was it written in the in the 70s or before then uh, early 60s she wrote it I I think I read it gosh, I don't know, 65 or 66. Um, and then she wrote The Long Secret that came after that one. So I've not read that, which is I'm horrified by because you think I would have tracked that down. What's The Long Secret about? Well, you know, it was supposed to be a sequel and I hate to disparage other writers ever, but it, it wasn't a great sequel. So I'll just stop right there. But there is a really wonderful biography out now of uh, uh, Louise uh, Fitzhugh in it. Boy, you really find out she was a tortured soul. That was her. She was Harriet. I'm really excited about reading that. And I do think what you were saying about what the librarian said, as a, a writer and a reader, I find that hugely, hugely comforting. I remember that feeling so well of thinking that books and words were perfect and pure and powerful and sort of almost omnipotent. And actually, books are allowed to be not very good. And our reading of them is so subjective as well. I think for anyone growing up who's dreaming of writing and, you know, we're always striving for for excellence and striving to write great things. But you think, oh, 
it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to be interesting it just has to maybe fit a mood moment at the time yeah I think that that's really true and I think exactly what you said reading is subjective so there are plenty of works of art we all look at and go I don't get it and that's going to be true for books and music and and anything in the arts you know um my librarian was just hilarious though, because she, there were just some books, I can't really really remember off the top of my head, but she'd say, these are too childish. And I was a child. <laughs> I love that about her. That's just such a special feeling though, isn't it? You feel so seen. I know, no, I was so like, oh, she knows, you know, I'm way beyond this level. But no, she did not recommend books to me where the kids were dumb, you know, or they were, you know, I don't know, they they made poor decisions or, I mean, they did make poor decisions, but it wasn't a book written by an adult about, you know, a fantasy child. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I think about Charlie Brown all the time in that a child with very adult emotions. And I think all children do have very adult emotions. In a way, it's even more intense because you don't have the the context. Your feelings are very sophisticated, but they're also very new. You don't think, oh, my friends feel this way and I know how this is and I'm not framing it in terms of a life with a, I don't know, you know, bills and a, a mortgage and a mother-in-law I've got to see next Tuesday. <laughs> no, it's it's so true. You know, and I grew up on Charles Schultz and Peanuts and, you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special and everything where, you know, he's humiliated by his friends and and pushed pushed aside and everything else and it it really had a big impression on me made a big impression on me I've read that you said that Elizabeth Zott the star of um, Lessons in Chemistry who we've all fallen in love with that character was originally part of a a minor character in another novel you were you were writing and she kind of took on a life her own are there any novels with characters who aren't perhaps the main part of the story where you thought oh but I would love a novel about them you're gonna laugh the landlady in uh crime and punishment i've always wanted to know her backstory yeah no there have been other books where i've just fallen in love with a side you know a minor character um now of course i can't think of any off the top of my head except for that one i've always been intrigued by that book always it's very strange you know that's the joy of reading too is that you you see all these multiple lives in one book and you get to you're invited into their thoughts, into their interior lives. And, you know, they're saying things that they don't want anyone else to hear. I just, I think that's the greatest. And I think that's why I love rereading so much, noticing the fullness of something. And when I've read something, once I know the story and I can come back and really find those, the details and the stories within the story, I find that really rich and really inspiring. Yeah. Uh, are there any books that you reread or revisit? I sometimes will open a book and it'll be any book just sitting around and just read a couple of sentences, almost as if to spark my brain. Like this, I always think the same thing. This writer was sitting down by themselves and they're writing these sentences and maybe they rewrote them 10 times. And so I try to see their, their craft and their pain on the page, and then I can close it and move on. It's not so much what it says as I can sort of feel the other writer sitting there with me like, you know, yeah, I know this is a hard job. It's almost like an acknowledgement from them. Um, hang in there sort of thing. But yeah, that's kind of how I use it. And I think it's it's really um, it, that Oscar Wilde book that you mentioned, too, is sort of like that. You know, you can just open it up and and find a few things. And um, 
Sometimes some poets can be like that for me. I'd love to hear about any favorite poets you have. I have two, actually. A new one I was not familiar with. I ran across a poem of hers and I thought it was excellent. Her name is Kate, I want to say it's Bear, B-A-E-R. And I was so impressed by this poem that I went and I got her book of poems. And then, of course, it turned out she'd been reviewed in the New York Times. It wasn't like, you know, she was living under a rock or anything, Um, but she's really, really good. And I love her story about, you know, she's a mom with two kids and sometimes she writes poems on the back of, you know, fast food um, bags as she's picking kids up or whatever, but she's really talented. And then my other one, my other favorite poet who is, you know, a current poet is Ocean Vuong. I think he's really incredible. I think he might be the smartest person on the planet. He's really intimidating. It's such an incredible distillation, isn't it, of someone's brain to be able to express something really, really complex in such an economic way. I think that's what I'm always striving to do. And I love poetry for that. And I always, I wish I... I read more of it. There is nothing to stop me from reading more of it either. Well, you know, poetry, I think, is a really interesting part of writing. I think poetry attracts more bad poets than any other writing form um, because you can get away with murder. And there's a real craft to poetry, which I don't even begin to understand. I would never be a poet. I can't do it. But when I see poets and their poems that really work, they just fill me up. And so I don't, I don't really don't know how they approach their craft. I really don't understand it at all, but I want to. And I've learned a lot from poetry in terms of, you know, they, they have to get all the feeling in a very short space, a very small space and communicate a lot. A lot of poems, you know, you'll read them and you go, I don't know what that meant. Um, we are far more forgiving when poems are set to music and they're called lyrics. And we go, we'll sing along, makes no sense at all, but, you know, we'll repeat it ad nauseum. But if you're just reading poetry on a page and it doesn't come off, then it doesn't come off. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a real art form and I'm I'm no expert in it, but I admire it. I think especially when we're teenagers, maybe um, I read a lot of poetry at school and I really loved it. And I also loved if I got an album, I'm old and had physical albums yeah. that came with like the lyric sheets and I'd look at those and I'd memorize them. And there's such an intensity of feeling then when you are so desperate to fall between the gaps. And I think that's a a really precious thing to hold on to, to want to be pulled in. But words that maybe are very hard to kind of unpick in a literal way, they can evoke such a, a powerful, incredible feeling. And, you know, I think lots of people accuse teenagers of being pretentious, but it's, I think there's something really magical about that willingness to be moved. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, but again, I think the problem with poetry is that everyone thinks I can be a poet. And I feel sorry for real poets because I think, you know, their craft is extraordinary. And, uh, and then you have a lot of people who will say, I just wrote this poem today. And when I read about poets and how hard they work and what they're trying to accomplish, with the exception of Kate Bear, who apparently can write them on the back of a Taco Bell bag. I mean, she is just amazing, but I'm sure she edits it. I'm sure that she, mm-hmm. you know, really has this, this craft that she's defined down in order to communicate so succinctly and so beautifully. 
Um, but I do think it's one of those areas where um, a lot of people think I can do this and they don't see that what they're doing isn't actually poetry. It's just maybe their interior thoughts. It's maybe more of a journal or something like that. Um, and I think teenagers, you know, we're all teenagers write poetry or they should um, yes. because, you know, they can express their feelings and get all, all out. And then whether or not it's valuable or it has lasting value depends then, of course, on the craft of it. And so then learning that craft is the hard part <laughs> for poets, I think. You know, poetry is not unlike any kind of writing is not unlike surgery. Mm. Not everyone can be a surgeon. But everyone has a body. <laughs> yeah, everyone has a body. And you can, but you do actually have to learn some things about the craft. You do have to, in order, if you want to become a good poet, you know, I think, like I say, I think poets have it pretty hard uh, in terms of writing and success in the poetry field compared to journalists, novelists, screenplay writers. Um, their work is often overlooked and undervalued. And that's got to be really tough. You have to have a much thicker skin to be a poet than any other writer. And I think being a novelist, you have to have a pretty thick skin, but a poet, you have to have rhino hide on top of hippo hide. I don't know, <laughs> on top of elephant hide. Yes, tough. <laughs> well, also being sensitive enough to, to feel the feelings and express them. Who are the writers who you think have inspired you the most and, and taught you the most? Oh, gosh, my list is so huge. I'll just try to narrow it down. I think as a kid, I really got on this 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 track of reading the greats, you know, what everyone said was the great book. So I read a lot of Russian authors and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and people like that. Then I also read Flaubert and of course, all the great American writers. I was, I love Joseph Heller and, you know, people like that really were inspirational. Talk about a wide ranging form of, of writing though. I mean, that's the great thing about reading broadly. There's far more than one way to tell a story. There are a billion ways and it's up to the writer to find their way to tell their story and their voice and not try to imitate another writer. So for me, I think um, the writers I loved the most were the Russians and the um, the French, but then also, I mean, I loved Jack Kerouac and I loved, I wasn't a huge fan of John Opdyke, but uh, I loved George Eliot. I loved Jane Austen. I loved all of those people. And then today, of course, I love Donna Tartt, Hanya Yanagihara. I love people who have a big story to tell and who develop their characters fully and take me someplace where I've never been before. You know, I don't really want to read someone else's imitation of what someone else has done. To me, that's um, that means that somebody has submerged themselves to try to be someone else. And you should never do that, you know, because you're good enough just as you are. And hearing your voice is what I want. So Barbara Kingsolver is another huge favorite of mine. John Irving was a huge influence on me because he never shied away from having huge outlandish characters in difficult situations and yet bringing in political commentary. I love that. I don't know. Gosh, I could just go on and on about all the writers I love. I have a million. There are so many things I want to ask you about. I was thinking, especially about, I think, Flaubert and Austin. 
And I remember loving Jane Austen. I think Sense and Sensibility was the first one I read because I saw the advert for the film and it looked fabulous. And my mother loves Austen so much. And she's like, you are not watching that film before you read the book. But they're funny. And to pick up these books that do look a little bit dusty and grand and intimidating and serious like these, what adults like, and they're hilarious. The same things were amusing 150, 200 years ago, as they are now. That's an incredible discovery. It is. You know, she's written universal characters. And the fact is the human condition doesn't really change from decade to decade. We're still all seeking the same things and wanting the same things. And when you see how character in Jane Austen's day handled, you know, her emotions about relationships or marriage or whatever it was, um, the desire to be who one is meant to be, you feel connected to people on earth. And that's what I really enjoy. I think so many writers have done that very well. I, you know, sometimes I, I really want to read, reread some of this stuff, but I'm afraid because we live in such a small flat to bring another book into this environment. <laughs> I had to, you know, I have a Kindle, but it's not the same. Uh, it is, it is not the same. Although I do love, um, I'm a Kindle convert, especially I think when I'm going to sleep um I find it quite hard to read just before bed because I get a bit overexcited so I tend to read something I love that I've already read and know well and sometimes even reading on a kindle and having the low light it's I find it easier to just stop and nod off and not whereas a book I'm you know literally gripping it going what's going to happen next that is hilarious because all these doctors will say you should never read your kindle before bed because of the blue light you know or, or whatever um I can't read a Kindle at night. I've tried to, but I just can't. It has to be a real book. Then I have to have a light on. You know, it's just um, all these all these things that you have to do to make sure that, that you don't ruin your eyesight doing it. But um, you know what? I, I love to read a Kindle on a plane and places like that. And you're right. You get arcs and things and you can just have a PDF and it's so much better um, than having sometimes having the hard copy laying around. So... And then you don't feel like it's a waste because what happens to all those arts? <laughs> it's a mystery. They hopefully go back into the ether. They're all um, <laughs> in mystery. tote bags at the bottom of my wardrobe, all yeah. the arcs in the world. Uh, so what are your nightstand books? What books are on your or around your bedside table at the moment? You know what? I would tell you that. But as I said, we just moved. Every book is packed. Um, so right now I have actually nothing except for the Russian edition of my book, which just came out, which I can't read because it's in Russian. (laughs) So um, I have nothing except the things that I'm reading on my Kindle. And I can't really tell you what those are because two of them are arcs and I'm not sure that they're going to hit home for me. (laughs) Um, And then I'm reading some nonfiction. I, I really like nonfiction. And I keep revisiting one book I have in my Kindle called Rationality by Steven Pinker. It's kind of over my head in a lot of ways, which is why I have to keep going back to it. What's it about? I'm guessing from the title um, what it's about, but um, Rationality. What, what drew you to it? Oh, I'm, you know, my character, Elizabeth Zott, is very rational. And I've been drawn to the idea of rationality because our society is so irrational. The news is so irrational. We act in irrational ways every day. And, and 
I just want to spend some time with uh, the idea of rationality and what makes us become irrational, what leads us down that path. So that's really what the book is about. Unfortunately, it includes some math, which is not my strong suit, but it is really an interesting look into how we gradually, as children, become more and more irrational. Is it to do with a sort of an emotional response, what we predict based on feelings we've had in the past? rather than making a, a sort of pure practical decision based on what's actually happening. You know, it's 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 astounding. We're influenced by so many hundreds of things every day. It's not just our emotions. It's just what we become accustomed to seeing, what we assume is true, which may not be true. Um, and so that for that, I really recommend this book. But yeah, I have to keep going back to it because there are huge swaths of it I don't understand and I have to reread them. I mean, I think anyone listening would be a little surprised to hear that like what do you mean you don't know maths surely you're a maths expert but I understand you did a lot of research about the the chemistry and the the science in lessons in chemistry yeah I did I I bought a old textbook off of uh, eBay and I taught myself 50s chemistry 1950s chemistry because I found out pretty early on you can't google old science very well and in order to be accurate um, I had to kind of teach myself as much as I could about chemistry in that time. I was pretty worried about it, honestly, because I'm not a scientist, but I am used to as a copywriter writer, writing what I don't know. And so I thought it'll just be another write what you don't know, just do the research. But chemistry is just a tad harder than that. <laughs> it was a good it was good for me to to have to do it. I mean it's a glorious challenge to set oneself. And that's a fascinating thing, I think, as well as like, you know, recent history, relatively recent history and what is what was known then and and what has changed and how those approaches happen. I mean, I think as well, sometimes I struggle with historical fiction because I feel as though the writer has done so much research and the research has taken so much time and they've maybe spent a year, years of their life really, really immersed in the 14th century and they need the reader to see their working. And as a reader, I'm only interested in the bits that move the story forward. Um, Me too. And that's what I think Lessons in Covers does so beautifully. I think that's possibly why so many, so millions of us have adored it because the science parts are truly fascinating but it's ne- we never feel as though we're taken out of the story I'm with you you know I didn't even know I'd written a historical novel uh, <laughs> I had no idea that the 60s would be considered historical I couldn't believe it but then my editor in New York said Bonnie the 1990s are now considered his- historical fiction went, oh my god <laughs> so yeah that was a lesson I had no idea when it was slotted into historical fiction I thought it was a mistake <laughs> Well, we just had a guest on this podcast called Kevin Wilson, and I loved his book. Oh, I love Now him. is not the time to panic. Yeah. And his book is set in the 90s, and it's kind of about, it's about a lot of things and about vulnerability and isolation and friendship and those awkward feelings. I cannot believe how well he has written a teenage girl, Frankie, and how much I love her. But it is sort of about going viral before the internet and you might think, is it really such a big deal to write about that time when we were on the brink of being so connected, but we weren't that connected, and what it was like in a small town outside Memphis? But it really evokes the feeling of the 90s, and it really brought home to me how, in a way, the 90s were 
much, much, much closer to the 60s than, say, the 2000s, or in terms of not actual time, but the way things have speeded up. Oh, that's an interesting viewpoint. I hadn't even thought of that. You know, I haven't read that book by him. I read his other one. I loved it. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I always feel like people always say to me, boy, Lessons in Chemistry feels like it was written now. Um, And I think that that's one of the goals of literature is to, you know, like you were saying, span those time, time frames between, say, Jane Austen. Why is she still so fresh today? because we're still suffering under the same same problems that we had 200 years ago, probably. Um, so I'm anxious to read that book now by Kevin Wilson. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We'll be back with Bonnie soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Cleopatra and Frankenstein by Coco Mellis. This book totally took me by surprise. I wasn't sure about the conceit, the idea of Cleopatra meeting Frankenstein, but I was surprised and delighted to find a funny, tender, very human story about friends, family and falling in love in New York. I believed every single relationship and the fact that a love story is almost never about two people. A romance is shaped and contained by friends and family too. This book does not shy away from its darkness, but it's hopeful. I loved it like I love Carol Shields and Sue Miller, and I'm so excited about what Mellors will write next. Cleopatra and Frankenstein is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now, back to Bonnie. We talked um, at the Henley um, Literature Festival back in October, and something you said then that I think of all the time is that Elizabeth Zott is a catalyst. Most of the books I've drawn to, most of the fiction I've drawn to, you see a character changing over time and maybe becoming stronger or learning more or somehow evolving. And she is one of the few who Elizabeth doesn't change, but she changes everyone and everything around her. Mm-hmm. Are there any other novels where you felt like that about the protagonist, that they are they are the force that changes things? Or are there any books where 
you've enjoyed watching that person change. You mentioned um, Hanya Yangahara. Um, I read A Little Life so late. I only read it last year because I thought this is just going to be relentlessly bleak. <laughs> and I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe how much I loved it and how quickly I read it. And I love how how you see people change in that book and how you see people not change when you want them to, I guess. In lots of ways, I suppose Jude is so understandably damaged and devastated by what has happened to him that no matter... Sorry, I get very... Oh no, I know. This is why, (laughs) this is why I didn't read it for so long. Um... He is, he inspires so much love and that love can only really heal him up to a point right. and not, and not beyond that. But the fact of him inspiring the love is sort of enough in a way, I suppose. And you kind of want him to, to get to the end of the book. Well, you, you do and you don't. I wanted him to feel sort of made whole, but the truth of the story that Yangahara wants to tell is like no, you know, he's entirely human. When you've had that kind of experience, you really can perhaps only be healed to a point, and that's why it's so powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think he is the ultimate tragic figure, and we are so moved by his his early tragedies that continue to haunt him through his whole life, and we want him to heal. And maybe we're just being unrealistic. You know, I last night I watched. I was quite on the Western front. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's really about the futility of war, of course. It's the ultimate novel about the futility of war. Uh, But seeing it so done so well on screen, it's so visually powerful. And you really feel the weight on, and, and just, I don't know, the ridiculousness of ever getting into any kind of conflict like this. So, yeah, if you want to be moved in a in a sobby way, don't don't watch that, although I highly recommend it. I think it was tremendous, but it left me pretty depressed. I don't know whether I am comforted or despairing about the fact that all our novels and everything, nothing ever changes. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes that isn't I don't know if you've read um Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. They are charming little diaries, little vignettes, really good, I think, for a brief burst of inspiration. She's incredibly funny. Um and I think she starts off writing in I want to say the twenties or thirties. She goes all the way up to the Second World War. Yeah, I I don't know that we'll ever sort of get beyond war. <laughs> We'll have to get beyond as a as a society as well, doing these stupid things. But I think we'll also probably always be amused by the same things. Yeah, you know, I think when I look back on history, you can see this pattern we have of the pendulum swings. We go up and down hills. It just seems to be part of the human condition. But I do kind of wish we would learn a little bit more from our mistakes and mm-hmm. and not keep repeating bad history. You know, I'm fond of saying that. Things like sexism and racism would probably be less prevalent if we started science education in schools at a very young age, you know, in preschool. 
if kids really understood genetics, if kids really understood a little bit of chemistry right away, they would soon learn that there is no such thing as, you know, a black person, a white person, a Hispanic person. There's no such thing as race, really. There's only the experience of race, which has been really horrible for so many people for such a long time. And so the same with sexism. If kids really understood from an early age that uh, women, girls aren't somehow less capable and never have been, you know, if that kind of history was sort of smudged away as either a fatal flaw or some sort of mistake and kids were made to realize you're just as good as the person sitting next to you, you're just as capable. And not only that, you and everybody in your classroom are 99.9% the same. The idea of us treating each other differently might start to fade a little faster, but kids aren't taught this. Most kids have no idea that we're also genetically related to each other. You know, this, there's all this idea all the time of family being related by blood. Well, that has very little to do with anything. In fact, every time you create a new human being, they're different, except we're really all the same. <laughs> it's very, it's very interesting to me. But I always think in terms of um, looking back, that history repeats itself largely because of scientific ignorance. I would love for you to write, please write some sort of science for children, some nonfiction. But I think as a an ignorant adult who's not good at science, I, I could understand it <laughs> if you taught it to me and I say what to understand. And I think a lot about the number of things I sort of don't really question enough because it's like, oh, this is based on a study. For example, I've been talking to uh, Fern Brady and Catherine May on this podcast. We've both talked about being diagnosed with autism in adulthood and reading about it and having questions and that being missed, partly because the main study about autism was, I think, done with like nine-year-old boys in Vienna yep. who have sort of certain and Fern Brady makes a brilliant joke about the doctor saying well that you can't, you can't possibly be autistic because you've got a boyfriend be like, well yeah none of the nine-year-old boys in Vienna would have boyfriends so that wouldn't have come up as a as a symptom but I forget that it's all all white dudes in the past I stopped to think why is it that I have been mostly reading white authors because mostly white authors have been published and reading fiction more widely and reading about human experiences as widely as we can and the earlier that we start doing that as children the earlier we give those books to children I think that's really really important and that can make a huge difference you know what's really fascinating to me as a child I loved reading you know the Greek myths I loved reading um I lived really near an Indian reservation, the Navajo reservation. So I grew up reading all the Indian stories, you know, their stories, not stories told by white people about Indians, but their stories. And at that time, I remember, you know, reading really broadly Asian uh, stories, African stories, all those, those are a lot more interesting to me as a child than, you know, cowboy stories in the United States. I could see that on TV. I wanted to travel elsewhere. And so I did. But as I got older, it seemed to narrow. It seemed like as almost as if, well, you read all the African tales, you know, as a child. So you're done. I'm not done. You know, I thought it's it's really strange to me that you don't get that kind of voice in fiction where it is there for children. And then it goes away. 
And yeah, I agree. Publishing has a big problem with that. And I think I'll just go back and say, if we had science education at an earlier age, we would understand that the tales of people in different lands are shaping them, but their biology is not. Mm. And I think that, you know, if we understand that you actually, there are some people who say, well, I don't want to read. I actually have a friend who said, I don't read anything from an author in the Mideast because I can't relate to those people. Of course you can relate to those people. They're exactly like you can, but they have this different culture and this day, different way of looking at life, which is really worth reading about. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think for some reason, it is so much more accessible to children than it is to adults. Well, we know the reason. <laughs> yeah, because you've not got those barriers in your head. It, a lot of the stories I love is because I do um, relate in some way. Me and my friend Lauren say our favourite genre of fiction is sort of like anything mostly British, Britain between sort of 1920 and 1960, posh but poor, sort of mit for D, girls in patched up dresses and the house is falling down and sort of something must be done. And it's like in, in ballet shoes where money's so tight, but it never occurs to them to sell their enormous house in Kensington or, you know, the um, Nancy Mitford books. So they're all sort of, you know, titled and living in these sort of very ugly, grand but shabby houses. Um, but then the beauty for me of fiction especially is that as you say it shows that our experiences are unique and universal and I think it's really important for us to connect to universal humanity I think reading builds a part of our brain that's sort of vital for that and I just recently learned this difference between I think cognitive empathy and effective empathy and I think it's cognitive empathy. I think I've got that the, the, the right way around, which is a much more sort of being in the shoes of that person and not having to layer your own experience on top of theirs, which I think is what fiction does and is vital for. Yeah, you know, it is really funny. Um, my family has this funny thing they, they always say when you're relating a you know, an important story or sad story of your own to someone and, and they interrupt you and they go, oh, that's just like me. I, you know, they haven't really, they haven't really listened. And then, you know, you've made a mistake, you know, opening yourself up to this person. Um, because I think it is really valuable to become a listener and to, you know, empathy is a pretty important muscle in the brain and in the soul. And if we had more empathy for everyone all over the world and we share all the same problems, all the same problems. It seems to me that we wouldn't have so many problems in the world. Um, but because publishing, like you were saying, has gotten so much narrower as you grow older. And now I think, you know, the publishing has certainly recognized that there's a problem. I was on a Zoom not long ago where we were talking about systems being the problem. You know, that we hear about systemic racism, systemic sexism, and things like that. But it actually starts with the system. These Our systems are broken. And I think it was, um, gosh, I can't remember who I was talking to. There's one part in my book where Calvin says to Elizabeth, you know, you don't try to fix the system, you outsmart it. And she says, why don't we just smart with, start with a smart system in the first place? Why is it that we reject that idea of simply fixing the system? Because we know it's wrong. And we know in publishing, I think they are trying to fix the system and bring in a lot more voices. Um, but it it is 
oh, there are just so many tales that are going untold that are really interesting. Mm. <laughs> you know, really interesting. I'd love to hear them. Sometimes I really, really want to hear these voices. I did want to know whether when we're talking about kind of empathy and sympathy and people responding to problems. Are there any fictional characters you would confide in and trust to give you the right response if you're having a tough time? And are there any fictional characters who'd be the absolute last people you'd call? Well, I never call Scrooge, of course. (laughs) Maybe at the end he kind of realizes he went the wrong way. Um, Characters I would confide in. Maybe Joe from Little Women. I love Joe because you'd feel like she would absolutely take you seriously if you needed to be taken seriously but if you were really in your own head about something that wasn't quite so quite so dramatic she would probably catch that and say come on now and give you the sort of the tough love yeah I think so you know as a kid I had this kind of major stutter so I didn't like to talk and it made me it was you know horrible I was horrified by it It went on forever way until adulthood I kind of credit that disability as a gift because it it meant I listen to people a lot. And when you listen to people a lot, they end up telling you more than they say through their body language and their facial expressions and everything. And I think it helped make me a little more observant of, of humans and especially of their sadnesses, not what made them happy. What makes you interesting is what makes you sad. (laughs) So I, I think that that was important for me, but It's so interesting, the question you've just posed about confiding in a character, because all these characters are just racing through my brain now. And I'm thinking, would I tell her that? Would I tell him that? I don't know. Because we're all afraid of being judged. This idea of of listening and 630 can't talk out loud, but is thinking all the time Mm -hmm. and so smart and so responsive. And this idea of looking at the way a whole person is is responding in their, not just their words, but their body language and their tone and the way that animals are so smart and evolved like that. And I wonder if that's why 630 is so vivid on the page, if there's that that bit of you and how you watch people and watch the world and and respond. You know, I think really 630 was based on our dog Friday, who was very much like that, who would observe us and watch us and trail us and protect us. And, you know, she was just, she was really smart. And I have to confess that we didn't teach her all those words. She taught herself words that makes her a lot smarter than most humans. I think I have just recently finished reading a book by Ed Young called An Immense World. I'm really glad that he wrote it because sometimes I'll get pushed back on 630, like, you know, a dog couldn't possibly do this. Well, anyone who thinks that is completely wrong. Um, Dogs can learn, um, they've documented dogs who've learned well over a thousand words. Some dogs can read. Um, It is really interesting that we are so quick to judge other species and so quick to define intelligence by human standards. When you read this book, we are clearly not the smartest species on the planet. We're ruining the planet, in fact. (laughs) for many of the other species. So I think dogs have incredible empathy for humans. They love us anyway. And I wanted to bring that out in 630 and just have him share his thoughts about how much he loves us, but how many foolish choices we make. I think that's the first thing we should be taught in schools, isn't it? We are not the smartest things (laughs) on the planet. I think if that, we had that as a bedrock. Yeah, 
Okay, I'm with you there. You know, the octopus has nine brains. Maybe they should be in charge. Are there any other animals in books that you've loved? Oh, I've read all the dog books when I was a kid. Every single one, you know, Lassie, Big Red, uh, everything that you can think of that had a dog in it. I had a dog, Dogs of the World poster in my room. Um, I've always been a really big dog person. And I love spending time with our dog, you know, because I had trouble speaking. He couldn't speak. And then we were just always together. It was really comforting for me as a child to have this dog who seemed to understand, you know, they really read you if you're sad. Our greyhound, we have a greyhound now, and she, you know, she doesn't like to hear anyone crying. So if someone, she hears a child or an adult crying, she'll go, and she's huge, you know, she'll go up and push herself against that person, which is actually scary for a lot of people, um, which she doesn't, she doesn't realize how big she is. But I love that she instantly picks up that something's wrong and she wants to fix it. I love dogs. I'm a bit nervous around them still. And there's, you know, really big dogs, like, you know, great Danes and lovely big sort of bounding retrievers. I do always sort of have that, oh my goodness, they're running at me and they're going to attack me because, you know, one's bitten as the saying goes. But also that they're not running at you like I am a big dog. They're just doing something really impulsive and free and they want to bring love and joy well they sometimes do i think sometimes there are dogs you know unfortunately that act out because they've been abused they haven't Mm. been raised in a good environment just like people who aren't raised in a good environment are not not going to behave um very well and so i think you know there are some dogs you have to be really careful about and in fact our dog Mm. has been attacked a few times oh i'm sorry oh yeah no it's horrible but you know That's the thing, though, is that dogs don't attack unless they have a reason. People, Mm. I think, sometimes attack even without a reason. I suppose it kind of brings us back to Jude and Scrooge. And we love Jude in A Little Life as readers because Jude is so vulnerable. Do we ever get any sort of sense of Scrooge's origin story that he is he's transformed by by love and by this vision, but we also have to think that very painful things must have happened to him to make him this person that shuts the world out. You know, I think that's really the gift of literature is that a a good novelist can give you the reasons behind people's actions. And hopefully they don't overpaint it and over explain everything. um, But that, you know, you get to see a fully dimensional person um, and understand sometimes, not always, but sometimes what their backstory is. So you can have empathy for them. When I'm writing a character, even the bad ones, I want to understand why they got that way. I don't always put it on the page, but I know Mm. what happened to them. Because I think, you know, it is really true that you can live in the lap of luxury and be born to, you know, wealthy parents, but you may have a horrible upbringing, or you may be very poor and, and have a great upbringing. Um, It just, it's just the backstory for me is where the story is. (laughs) And it's really fun to wonder. And I think the most generous writers do give us that space, as you say, about not necessarily putting it on the page, but so there's enough room for us to be thinking. Because I, I, Always, I want these the characters to live and breathe in my head and move after. I don't think the story ever really ends. And sometimes I think, and perhaps Lessons in Chemistry is one of those books where if ever you wanted to write a sequel where nothing happens and we can just hang out with Elizabeth, that would be a delight. But that's that's what's happening. That's when a book 
stays with me just sort of want to make everyone so I think that's why I reread as well that I can go to it knowing that all of the peril and all of the drama is resolved and that people are ultimately okay yeah you know so many people have asked me if I'm writing a sequel and I'm not because I always think you should always leave before people want you to leave don't overstay your welcome mm-hmm. but you know it was really true she was just three sentences in a previous book and it was exactly who she was, a chemist, a depressed chemist who had a cooking show, but that's all I knew about her. And when I started really thinking deeply about her and how she got there, then the story started to unfold. And I felt like, you know, you can listen to your characters. They're very, they want to tell you, you know, they're all telling you, they're not telling anyone else. It's it's a really big privilege to have these people <laughs> confide in you. Um but yeah, I think I think that it's really interesting to craft characters like that from, I don't know, from a, I guess from a foundation of of empathy and listening, just listening. I don't know too many writers who spend a lot of time talking. You know, you know, I used to go to a lot of meetings, and half the time I would just sit there and say nothing um, until the very end, where I'd go, I'm not going to do that or that. <laughs> But I think, you know, in a way you want to give other people as much space as possible and listen to what they have to say and then draw some conclusions from that. And you can be wrong, but, you know, as long as you're listening carefully, at least you'll get something down. And that helps round the character. That helps bring them, make them believable. A book that came out last year that I adored, that I think you might really, really enjoy, it's called The Movement by Aisha Malik. And it's sort of about that it's a dystopia adjacent and I don't normally love a dystopia but this is about a a writer who has taken a vow of silence and accidentally sparked off this global movement where people become verbal or non-verbal I loved it and I've not stopped thinking about it and I think you might think it's great oh thank you for that suggestion it sounds really good it's really interesting to think about a book where how does a writer write a book where people don't speak that is amazing (laughs) I'll have to look at that one well she's done it she's really pulled it off it's excellent um Bonnie i talk to you for the rest of the day but I know you're very <laughs> busy too. you've got a lot on. Me too, it's usual. Uh, before we go I'd love to hear about um what you're excited about reading next and uh, the first books that you're going to unpack when you have a chance to unpack the books. Um, I'm going to unpack Aesop's Fables. Uh, I have a copy here in London which I really love. I like those stories for the morality in them but also the there's a little bit of humor in them. There's I think when I'm writing, especially with lessons in chemistry, it's really important not to be didactic. You know, um, it's just no one wants to be talked down to or told what to do, or you know, have to have to submit to a sermon or whatever about what things are going wrong in the world. So I think Aesop's Fables does that really well. So I'm kind of excited about finding that copy. And then, like I said, right now, I'm really only reading nonfiction, but I have a couple of arcs and I can't talk about those because I don't know. I don't know how they're going to go yet. <laughs> I, I have I have not recently pulled too many books that I don't know off a shelf because 
probably like you, I have enormous amount of requests coming in to read. And so that's sort of, I'm trying to give whatever time I have left over to new voices and, you know, get a chance to read those. This has really made me want to go back and revisit um, Aesop's Fables. Um, It has been a joy. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I've loved every second of it. And um, I hope we get to do it again one day soon. Oh, I'd love that, Daisy. It's so nice to see you again. Huge thanks to Bonnie. In the unlikely event that you haven't read Lessons in Chemistry yet, it's out now and it will capture your heart and lift you up and stay with you. It's a rare, true delight. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books Bonnie mentioned at acast.com booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. We really, really appreciate it. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, it is the very best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. And for now, I leave you with this from Elizabeth Taylor. The whole point is that writing has a pattern and life hasn't. Life is so untidy. Art is so short and life so long. It is not possible to have perfection in a life, but it is possible to have perfection in a novel. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.